Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. If you have a Bible, open it to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, our text this morning is verses 10 through 13. This is, I think, Lord willing, the second to last message in our series through 2 Peter that we started a couple months ago. So as you're finding that, let me just mention, as we sang earlier, just how thankful I am to the Lord that, did you catch that verse? I mean, we, we need to get in the habit, if you're not already in the habit of paying attention to the words that we sing, we said, Jesus, thank you. The, the wrath of God is completely satisfied. Thank you, Lord, for that. I, I just, as we think about this Thanksgiving holiday, there's so much for us to be thankful for. I mean, I was just thinking about that line and thinking about the gospel and God's work on behalf of his people and then how all of the good gifts that spill out to us as his people. I was thinking about just this people in this church. I was thinking about this year and how challenging it's been and, and thanking the Lord for people that are serving behind the scenes, like our, our tech team. Uh, it just comes early and, and gets everything ready to go. And Brandon Barnes, who's held our online presence so that you can watch online, he's held that thing together with fishing wire and duct tape. I don't know how it happens, but it's on the internet. Our worship team that comes and they come early and they practice. And one of the things I love about our worship team is they're, they're gifted, but they're not prima donnas like some musicians can be. And they just, they get out of the way and they allow us to worship the Lord. I'm thankful for my fellow pastors and elders. I wish you could get a window into the discussions that we have around the office in our staff meetings and then in our elder meetings and it's just always geared towards the good of the church and the glory of God. And my fellow pastor elders, none of them are, 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 are full of ego. They're, they're not seeking their own glory. They're not in it for themselves. They're not here to be cute. They, they dearly want to serve the church. And I think about then just you as a congregation, how, how kind you have been to us and to the church. And uh, the decisions maybe that we've had to make in this past year have not all necessarily been perfect. Of course, none of us are perfect, but, but we've been gracious and good, and, and we're hanging in there, and the Lord is with us. And, and he has, he has, none of this has surprised him. He, he is ordained that we should live in this time, in this day, and that this Sunday would happen, and that we would open our Bibles to this text, and that we would lean forward into all that he has for us. So praise God. Praise God. Cheer up, church. Come on. Open your Bibles. Let's go. Let's lean forward into the goodness of God. Now, I'm going to read this text, and we're going to dig into it. And uh, the, the theme of this text is the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. And oh, what a balm this is for anxious souls. Our text is verses 10 through 13, but for context, I want to read starting in verse 8, where we left off a couple weeks ago. Oh, oh one more thing I'm thankful for is Robert's excellent message last week. If you missed that, if you were traveling, go to the internet, and <laughs> I sounded like I was some old guy that just discovered this thing called, go to our webpage, <laughs> well, I am an old guy, anyway, it was awesome, but we took a break, and now we're back, and a couple weeks ago, we looked at verses 8 and 9, and so I want to read that for context, and then our main text is verses 10 through 13. Peter writes, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And remember, we just centered on that phrase, that He is patient towards you, dear ones. And now our text for this morning, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. What a text. Let's pray. Lord, help us with this passage. You've given this to us for our good, for our correction, for our reproof, for our sanctification to save any that you've called to yourself through this word that are here today that you've appointed as the day of salvation for them today. You've appointed this word to make your bride more ready for the day that you speak of in this passage. Help me now, Lord. Get, I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly and faithfully that I would hide behind this text, that if there's anything in my personality that is an obstacle, I pray, Lord, that you'd remove it and that what would be held up would be the glory of Christ. We need to see Jesus. And so help us see your son in this text and be transformed. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I I think this text has two truths and then one question. That's how we're going to work through verses 10 through 13. Two truths and then one question that Peter asks us in the middle of this text. The the two truths, I think, are embedded in verse 10. So let's read verse 10 again. He says, but the day of the Lord. And that's a common New Testament phrase that is speaking about clearly the return, the second coming of Christ. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning unexpectedly. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there's two truths embedded in verse 10. The first is this, and I think it's rather clear and rather basic, but very, very important to Christian doctrine and the understanding of the Bible, and it is this, that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Notice the flow of Peter's logic in verses 8 through 10. In verses 8 and 9 that we handled a couple weeks ago, he was concerned about the doubt that he saw creeping into the church because some of the scoffers, as he's called them, were, were scoffing that Jesus had not returned yet. And there was this expectation amongst many first century Christians that that Jesus would return in their lifetime. And when that didn't happen, the scoffers, in fact, earlier on in chapter 3, they say in verse 4, it says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, meaning the Old Testament patriarchs, all things are continuing as they are from the beginning. And so these scoffers are wanting to, I think under the inspiration of the evil one, 
plant seeds of doubt in the church that oh, Jesus is not really coming back. But in verse 10, he, he's wanting to guard the church against the opposite air. If the air of verses 8 and 9 is this, this air that Jesus is never coming back, he's, he's wanting to, in verse 10, guard against the opposite air and saying, oh, well, then if he's never coming back or is this going to be a long time away, then I'm just going to live however, however I want to live. And he's saying, don't do that because he's wanting to build this tension under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he will come like a, a thief in the night. And so do you see kind of Peter is wanting to guard us against a laissez-faire attitude about the return of Christ. Peter's guarding on one hand against the reckless enthusiasm of like might think modern day date setters that are always looking into, you know, the headlines to, to look at a return of Christ and spiritual laziness and apathy, meaning this view that Jesus is, is a long ways away. He's wanting to guard against both heirs, the date setters who overreact to headlines and the, the world is awash with these type of people. I remember as I was thinking about this, I had to laugh. Uh, if you remember, there was this, this man named Harold Camping who used to teach on the radio and uh, he passed away a few years ago, but he was famous for his teaching about setting a date when Jesus would return. And he was wrong a few times, imagine that. But he, his last date before he passed away a few years ago was in May of 2011. And it happened to be the day before Robert and Sigourney Ward's wedding. And I remember when I was, Robert was here on staff as a, as a young guy out of college, and he was like, Brad, what if he's right? What if, he, what if Jesus comes back? He was kidding, of course. But we look at all of these people that are setting these dates and looking at the headlines and overreacting, and, and that's an error. But just as much of an error is people who live as if Jesus is never coming back. And Peter is wanting to guard against this. Now, a word, this brings us into the territory, the theological territory, the doctrinal territory of what's called eschatology, which is a big word that means the study of last things or the return of Christ, the, the end of the age. Now, one thing I want to say is that when you read in your New Testament and you see the phrase last days, don't think of that as a time that is out in the future as if you know, things are going to all of a sudden get really intensely worse and that then at some point we're going to tip over into the last days. The Bible in the New Testament really speaks of the last days as the time from the resurrection and ascension of Christ all the way to his second coming. So the Bible writers, the New Testament writers, spoke of the time that they lived in as the last days. So we've been living in the last days since the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. But a word about eschatology, this, this, this point of doctrine, this stream of doctrine about the last things or the end times. Now there are various legitimate views about the timing of Christ's return, about different views about the millennium. These are, these are all views that are faithful, biblical Christian views. And there's too much time to get into them now, although I did do a, a, what I hope was a thorough teaching on these end-time views about five years ago on a Wednesday night series that was creatively entitled 
the end. And it's on the website if you want to look for that. You, you can get into much more detail about different millennial views and views about the return of Christ. Uh, but here's what I want to say, is that we should be cautious about holding too dogmatically to one end-time view or another. There are several that, and really when you look at the span of church history, and the span of faithful giants of the faith that the Lord has used in beautiful, fruitful ways, there's a wide spectrum of views on the end time. There's not a wide spectrum of views on the doctrine of Scripture, or the doctrine of Christ, or the doctrine of the Trinity, or the doctrine of salvation. And we can be very clear about those things. But there is a wide view on the doctrine of the end times and the specifics about the return of Christ and the views of the millennium. What does this mean? Does it mean that the Bible is in some way insufficient? No. It means that I think clearly God has intended some ambiguity in the end times to keep his people ready and anticipatory and watchful. And the impact that it should have on us theologically when we consider theological views of the end times, is it should produce in us a humility. Conviction, yes, but conviction with humility, knowing that brothers and sisters through the history of the church have faithfully disagreed with the position that we may be very convinced about. So have conviction, yes, but have your conviction humbly and be careful, be careful about straining every Bible verse that seems to speak to the end times through your specific view of eschatology. That will set you up for a kind of isolation that is not good for you theologically. So that's the word about eschatology. But what can we say before we move on to the second truth? One thing we can say is that his return, and I think this is what Peter's getting to here in a broad way, is that Jesus' return will be unexpected. This is what Jesus says himself in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verses 43 through 44. Listen to what Jesus says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I think Jesus is clear enough there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, this is Paul's teaching as well in, the New Test in his New Testament letters. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, again, that's a New Testament phrase meaning the return of Christ, will come like a thief in the night. And it's clear. How do thieves come? They don't knock on your door and tell you that they're about to rob your house. So the return of Christ is unexpected, and it's imminent. And what do we mean by imminent? Well, there's much debate about exactly the imminence of Jesus' return. Could it happen at any moment? I think biblical imminence means that the return of Christ and the culmination of history, and this is how I think biblical Christians should posture themselves, and this is what Peter is getting at here in our text, is that the return of Christ and the culmination of at least this epoch of history, before we get into the new heavens and new earth, are always impending. And this was the posture of the New Testament writers. 
This is the posture of faithful Christians through the centuries, and this should be the posture of us today, that we should lean forward and be ready for the return of Christ, because truth number one, Jesus is coming back. Truth number two in verse 10 is that he is coming back to judge the world and everything in it. He's coming back to judge the world and everything in it. Now this judgment, let's look again at the second half of verse 10. He says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then there's this intense language in the second half of verse 10. Look at it again. It says, then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So what's going on there in that cataclysmic language that Peter uses in verse 10? The heavens passing away, heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved. What does that mean? Well, this judgment that Jesus is coming to judge the world involves involves this cataclysmic event in the created order. Now, there are two options historically that people have viewed this through. One, that Peter may be speaking about a kind of annihilation of the created order. All that is, it kind of goes, it gets just annihilated, and then, then God recreates the world. And that's one view. Another view, when we take this in balance with the rest of the things that the New Testament says about the coming of Christ and the restoration of all things, is that it's not so much annihilation and recreation, but purification and restoration of the earth. A judging that involves purification and restoration. And my perspective is that if we read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, in balance with the rest of what the New Testament says about judgment and about the return of Christ, that that seems more plausible. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 23, speaking about when Christ comes and the world is judged and renewed, what the world, what creation is longing for. Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with creation. All of the created orders, what Paul has in view here, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, for the final consummation of all those that are truly born again. For the creation was subjected to futility... Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So that's a, that's, a, that's a theological mouthful right there, verse 20, that what happened to the world, the futility that we are under as a result of the fall in Genesis 3 is coming about. We are being subjected. We are being acted on by who's doing this? Well, clearly the context is that it's God that is doing this because God has purposes in subjecting the created order, which we're included in, to futility for the purpose of, now in verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so looking back at verse 21, Paul is saying that the creation will be set free from its bondage 
on this day when Jesus comes back to finally and fully consummate the salvation and glorification of all of his people. So I think if we read Romans 8 in context with verse 10, and I don't really think it's that important what you view. I think both of them are faithful and legitimate views. Where you stand on, all these, on these things is not essential. I think that what's going on in verse 10 is not so much that God blows everything up and annihilates it and recreates things, but that the return of Christ brings about a judgment of all that results in a purification and a restoration of this created order that results in the new heavens and the new earth. He comes to judge. Clearly, we understand that he comes to judge unbelievers. That's clear. Just a few verses earlier, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then listen to John the Baptist, or John, the apostle says in John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so on this day, clearly judgment is coming. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 25. And he speaks about the final judgment and the sheep and the goats. And there's this beautiful, striking parable about how Jesus is saying when the Son comes, when the King comes, he's going to really divide the world into sheep and goats. There are really only two types of people. Sheep, those who are trusting in Christ and are part of the shepherd's flock, and goats who are not part of God's people. And the goats will be judged and separated from the shepherd forever. And the sheep will be brought near and live in green pastures with the shepherd forever. Friends, this is the gospel. And let me just pause here and say that if you are not trusting in Christ, don't miss the, the force of this text. That Jesus is coming and he will judge. And there will really be only one thing that he judges us on is whether or not we are trusting in him and his righteousness or whether we are outside of him trusting in ourselves. That's the most important question that we must always ask ourselves every time we come to the scriptures. Am I clinging to Christ? Am I trusting in him? Or am I trusting in myself? And on this judgment day, you will not be asked what neighborhood you come from. You will not be asked how much you made or whether you advanced or how good your kids are. You will not be asked what type of athlete you are or whether you were a good artist or a musician. You will not be asked whether or not you have been helpful here in a most primary sense. You will only be asked in the sense of salvation as to whether or not you are fleeing from your own righteousness and clinging to Christ. That's what we sang about. This is the most important news in the universe. We are all fallen. Sin has destroyed us. It's separated us from God. It's made us completely unable to do anything that would be righteous enough to make us commendable to God. But
But the glorious good news of the gospel is that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the creator himself, became a man. That's a beautiful, incomprehensible, but clearly seeable mystery in the Bible. And God became a man, and he lived a perfect life. And then he laid down his perfect obedience to Son, to the Father on the cross, and God punished Jesus instead of punishing his people. And because Jesus is not just a perfect, obedient man, but the eternally, infinitely holy Son of God, God himself in the flesh, Jesus had enough, more than enough, and an infinite amount of righteousness to satisfy and absorb all of the sin and all of the punishment that should be ours. And then he rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now, here's the most primary question for all of us, for all people, for all time. Are you trusting in Christ or are you not trusting in Christ? Are you in the Son or are you out of the Son? And when Jesus comes again, that's the primary question. Are you in Christ? That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. And that is the only hope for anybody in this room, anybody from any tribe, tongue, and nation, any neighborhood, any country, any ethnicity, anybody and everybody must trust in Jesus. Don't miss that in this text. That's what this text is ultimately meant to produce in us is clinging to Christ. But also, the Bible is clear, although that is the primary, the primary question that will be asked of every person on Judgment Day, the day of the Lord, there will be other questions asked, certainly of believers. And the Bible is utterly clear about that. He comes also to judge in a sense, listen to me carefully now, he comes to judge to, as it were, inspect believers and their lives and the quality of the lives that they've lived after their salvation, after they're born again, after God has made them alive, after he's given them a new heart. He now, on judgment day, although all those in Christ will be with him forever, there is also, the Bible is very clear, the New Testament is very clear, there is a, a kind of inspection, a kind of accounting that believers will give, not, hear me, hear me carefully, dear ones, not for salvation, but for what the Bible calls reward. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Paul is writing, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
So if you, <laughs> implicit there is that if you've built on these precious metals, it will survive. Wood, hay, and straw don't survive a fire. If the work, back to verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Uh, (laughs) There's lots we could say about this, but here's just one thing that we need to deduce from this is that on that judgment day, we will stand before the Lord, and there will be, listen to me, listen to me, dear ones, Romans 8, verse 1 is so clear. There is, now therefore, say it with me, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? And amen, and amen. But, what passages like 1 Corinthians 3 do, is they remind us that God has saved us for a purpose and our lives matter. How we live matters. It matters now and it matters forever. Now, how does that work? I, I don't know. The Bible's not particularly clear about this, but we will stand before the Lord on that day and this is not something that the Christian should dread because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we will stand before him on that day and we will be judged and there will be lots of wood, hay, and stubble in my life that will be burned up. And how should that affect me now? It should produce in me a longing to produce works that are of precious stone, gold and silver that will last. But here, here's, here's the glory of God's goodness in judgment, even of us in, in that sense, is that I long for that day because this wood, hay, and stubble that I'm carting along with me, I long for the day when I will finally be free of that. And I'll stand before the Lord and it'll be gone, it'll be gone. And the person who's next to me that's a believer, here's what's so glorious about heaven. Just a little rabbit trail here for you. Here's what's so glorious about heaven is is when we look around and our brothers and sisters may receive a greater reward than us, what will that produce in us? Well, because we're in heaven and there's no more sin, your greater reward than me will only serve as an opportunity for me to not be jealous, but to be more happy for you, which will increase my joy. Praise God. And so what should this produce in us? I'm getting ahead of myself, but it should produce in us a longing to live for God now. More on that in just a second. And this is Peter's question here. This is how he concludes. This is the logic that Peter comes out of the judgment with in verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, if this is the case, and clearly it is, if Jesus is coming back, and if he's judging, he's judging unbelievers, and he's purifying believers, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter's question is the heart of this passage and maybe the main point of the whole letter. What sort of people ought you to be in the face of these false teachers? What sort of people ought you to be in the face of persecution from the Roman Empire that's coming soon? What sort of people ought you to be, American Christians, in the midst of a hostile culture that hates God? You should be people whose lives are marked by holiness and godliness. Waiting, verse 12, waiting for 
Oh, verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So he gives us the answer. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? He says there, waiting for and hastening. First, waiting for. There's this picture that we should be waiting. Now, there's more, there's more, there's more gusto in this word waiting than just the English word waiting. There, there's, there's a broad spectrum of how you can wait. The, the, the context here of this word is looking forward to with great anticipation, eagerly awaiting. It's not a passive idleness. Let me give you an illustration, just a contrast. Think of, and this church is full of, of, of these type of, of glorious, wonderful people. Think of a military spouse, an army spouse, awaiting the return of her husband from a long deployment or war. We've all seen the pictures. We've all seen it. It's just this, I mean, she, she's eagerly awaiting. She's in the bleachers at the parade field or at Fort Benning. And when the, when the commander releases the troops, they run with the children. They run and they embrace and they hug. That type of waiting, that waiting for that long deployment is an eager anticipation of the return of the groom. Contrast that with... And I know we've all, most of us in this room who are of age have experienced waiting in line at the DMV. Now, I, just, uh, uh, I bought a new trailer the other day, like a little utility trailer. And I had to go to the government center to wait. And this is not, uh, listen, this is not me being sarcastic or cynical about people that work in the government. They're doing their best. They're doing their best. And we shouldn't be grumps when we get in the line. Be gracious to people, man. They're doing their best. Systems are broken. We live in a fallen world. People are trying hard. But the bottom line is, it's a long wait, right? And so because of, you know, the pandemic and the virus, there's like this social distancing. And down there at the government center, they got people lined up out the door, spaced underneath the parking deck, winding through and the other day, I went there to get a tag for my utility trailer, and I'm standing in line, and I'd been there for like 45 minutes, and I had moved like one little pad up, one little social distance pad up. And this guy walks out of the government center, and for some reason, I think this was just the Lord, he comes directly to me, and he says, I was standing right there three hours ago. It took me two and a half hours to go from where you are right now into the government center. And you know what? You know what he served? He sucked all of the motivation out of me. <laughs> and even though I had been there for like 45 minutes, I gave up, I gave up the ghost. I left. I said, I will, I'll do it. And I have been now toting around a utility tra trailer past the 30 days of purchase illegally. Guilty as charged. The waiting here is an anticipatory waiting. It's an eagerness, not a passive idleness. Passive idleness sucks us of our motivation. And secondly, he says, and this is really interesting. He says, wait for, verse 12, and hasten, hasten the coming of the day of God. Peter is saying here in verse 12 that there's a kind of posture, a kind of living and holiness and godliness that the Christian is called to that he says it hastens, can hasten the coming of the day of God. How does this work? Does this verse somehow undermine the fixed, unchangeable sovereignty of God? No. 
No. Isaiah 46 says that he knows the end from the beginning. Psalm 139 says that every one of our days were ordained before one of them came to be. Ephesians 1.11 says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. But, but here's what we can and must say, is that God, apparently this is what this verse is clearly pointing us to, God uses the means of our prayers, our evangelism, our repentance, our lives, and he somehow mixes it together and factors in our real lives into his sovereign, fixed, unchangeable timing. Praise God. And so how we live matters, and what Peter is saying here is that by the way that we live in this world, we can either hasten or delay the return of Christ. Now, you guys know me. You've been around for a while. I believe in the utter, exhaustible, fixed sovereignty of God. But I also believe in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, that we should live in a way that hastens, speeds up the return of Christ. Put that in your theological system and puff on it. We need that. So here's the question, and we end with this. One question. How then should we live? That's Peter's question. How, how, should we li- how ought we to live in lives of holiness and godliness? And I think he's answered it for us. First, we should live in anticipation. Get back to the picture of a wife getting ready for her husband to return from war. Think about that. Just picture behind the scenes in the months and weeks leading up. She's diligent to get things ready. She's cleaning the house. She's getting the children ready. She's dressed. She's ready to go. She's worked hard to look her best for her groom. So it should be with us spiritually, friends. No analogy is perfect. But imagine an army spouse who's husband returns from war, and she's not there at the company headquarters to pick him up. He has to hitch a ride home, and she's laying on the couch in her house robe with her hair and curlers eating Cheetos watching Lifetime Movie Network. Oh, hey, welcome back. That's how many Christians live. That's how many Christians live. This verse is given to snatch us out of couch-like Christianity and get us busy preparing for the return of the Lord. We should live in anticipation. And this verse is given. This this verse, the return of Christ, this, this truth that Peter introduces here is meant to be, just follow his logic. It's meant to be sanctification fueling. It's meant to be kindling on the fire of the true believer who can't wait for the groom to come and get his bride. And if you're not, I was thinking about this, I I think about areas of passivity in my own life, and I want this passage to convict me, and I want it to burn it up. I want it to burn up the wood, hay, and stubble in me. And I, and I wrote this sentence in my notes. 
if I am not motivated, if we are not motivated by this logic, then we might need to question whether or not we are really betrothed to the groom. And I'm not trying to undermine your assurance. But if your life is typified by spiritual apathy and laziness over and over and over again, it might be time to question whether or not you're truly betrothed to the coming groom. Secondly, we're to live, and it follows from this, we're to live on purpose. The Christian life is a life that's to be lived on mission, busy, producing, doing things, leaning forward into all that God has for us. It's to be a life that is lived on mission for His purposes. So here's just a question as we conclude. What are we doing, what are you doing for the Lord? This is not meant to produce guilt in us, not at all. This is meant to put kindling on the fire of our anticipation and our longing for what this text is calling us to. What are we doing for the Lord? Some of us are quick to like, grace, grace, it's all grace, yes, okay. But what is this grace producing in us? We were saved for a reason to glorify the Lord and be used by Him to bring others to Christ. Now, let's not over-romanticize this. It's, it's very practical and it's ordinary. What's your station in life? Oh, dear housewife, dear, dear stay-at-home mom, you are on the front lines of missionary work and evangelism as you're raising those little heathens who need the gospel. Children are not born Christians. Children are born as unregenerate little monsters that need the gospel. And what you are doing as you read this verse, you say, I'm going to give myself. I'm going to give myself to living a life that's built on this, produces precious stone and gold and metal that will survive the fire and not all this goofy mommy wore garbage. I'm going to live that life. Oh, you're living a life on mission. If you're a student, man, you, you know, you're, school's hard. I get it. You're not going to use the geometry that you're grinding on right now, maybe in life later on. But God has you there. He has you in that high school for a purpose. He has you in this family, in this church. He has you listening to this sermon. He has you coming to this youth group. He's got a purpose in your life. Don't be an apathetic teenager. Seize the day. Seize the moment. Don't waste your life. Before you know it, you'll be 50 with four kids and every joint in your body will hurt. I speak from experience. Redeem the day. The days are evil, Ephesians 5 says. Don't waste your life on TikTok. Right now, read. You've got, you think you're busy. You're not busy. You're not busy, young person. 
You've got time to read the Bible, to give yourself to great theological works, stuff that you can absorb. Young people can figure out all sorts of stuff. You can figure out good theology. Let's stop having low expectations for kids. They can figure stuff out. They can figure all sorts of stuff that none of us can figure out. They can figure out choosing the Bible. Redeem the time. Businessman, you're at Total System, you're at Affleck, you're there for more than just a 401k, you're there for more than the golf outing, you're there for more than the hunting trip, you're there for more than retirement. God has you in that department, in that cubicle, in that platoon, in that brigade, with that knucklehead captain and that mean first sergeant for a purpose. To lean forward into all that God has and to be used in some glorious, unassuming, ordinary, unspectacular, faithful way to, get this, hasten the return of Christ. You talk about living on purpose. So what does that look like in your life? What does that look like in your life? And I'm just praying right now, Holy Spirit, Go way beyond my little limited words and bring application and conviction into all of our lives. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're waiting. We're leaning into it. We're being good citizens. We live in a Babylon, not a Jerusalem. Jerusalem's coming. We live in a wicked land in a wicked world, in a fallen world. And we live to do good, to bring God's ways as much as we can in our world and in our sphere of divine. But we ultimately know that our hope is not here, but it's there, and we lean forward into it. We wait for the new heavens and the new earth, and earth, earth in which righteousness dwells. I end with this, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. This is John the Apostle with a vision of this new heavens and new earth that Peter's speaking about. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This makes me want to give my life afresh to serving the Lord and his purposes. What does that look like for you? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> May the question that Peter asks 
ring in our hearts as we sing, as we pray, as we repent, as we leave this building, as we go into this week. What sort of lives ought we to live in holiness and godliness? Lord, make your people more like your son. Rouse us from the couch. And if there's any in this room who don't know Jesus, awaken their dead heart so that they can be ready for the king. In Jesus' name.